Like, that's a dad joke, okay? It's just terrible. You're like, ah! So anyway, Claire this week came up to me. She's like, I have a dad joke. I have a dad joke. And I was like, okay. She's like, I made it up myself. I was like, okay. She goes, what did, what did one eye say to the other? Between the two of us, something smells. <laughs> that's brilliant! That's amazing! That's my kid's joke. Isn't that cool? Anyway, all right, so... I just had to, I had to share that. So I want to talk to you this morning. We're going to talk about planned obsolescence, planned obsolescence. You know how, uh, you, you know, your cell phone has planned obsolescence, right? When Apple or Samsung or whatever, when they build your phone, they don't intend for it to last very long. You know this, right? They plan for it to break around two to three years when you're getting ready to upgrade. They plan for it to get slow and sluggish and frustrating. They do this because this is part of their marketing and product cycle plan, right? This is capitalism at its finest, right? We we build something with the intention of it being no good and not very long. And my grandmother gets frustrated by this all the time. My grandma, who lives in Kansas City, my grandma remembers a time when she said, we bought a fridge and it lasted 40 years. And it just broke. And I bought another one like seven years ago and it just broke again. And my grandma's like, why can't they make stuff the way they used to? And I'm like, Grandma, they don't even plan to make it like they used to. They're trying to cycle these faster so they can make more money off of you. And that's why they embed technology in your fridge. You realize your fridge needs a software upgrade now, a hardware upgrade, a firmware upgrade. Like, this is ridiculous. There is no reason you need to be able to look at your phone and see the contents of what are on your phone through a camera that's on the inside of your fridge. You know they do this now. There's no reason you need that. It's cool. You do not need this. You can get up and open the door yourself, right? Okay, so planned obsolescence. They're building in things that will not work in just a couple years. They're doing this with our cars now, right? And it's maddening. It's maddening. I drive an old car. It doesn't have any of that stuff, and I'm holding out. I'm holding out. I'm one one of those people. Anyway, the point is when you build something and you plan for it to end, That's planned obsolescence. Here's why I'm bringing this up. The old covenant that God made through Moses with the people of Israel had planned obsolescence. There was a moment. God intended the old covenant and everything that went on with that, right? So the Ten Commandments, the, the law that went with all the sacrifices and all the temple worship and all that stuff, the old covenant... God gave that old covenant, but he knew at one point he was, it was going to be obsolete. It was going to go away, and it was going to be replaced by an upgrade, something better that was coming in the person of Jesus. And this is what uh, Hebrews is telling us in the chapter we're looking at, the back half of chapter 8 today, that the old covenant was always intended to go away to be replaced by something new, the new covenant. That Jesus would come along and bring. That he will fulfill the old. He will complete it. He will finish it. uh, He will bring resolution to it. And then he will usher in something new. And it's way better. And so we're going to look at this today. Grab your Bibles. We're in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 to 13. I know your bulletin says 7 to 13, but I need to read verse 6. So we're going to back up one verse here. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 
to 13. Page 1005 in the Black Pew Bible by your knees in case you want to grab that and join us there. Hebrews chapter 8, 6 to 13. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, and now here's a long quotation from Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. Here it comes. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all, they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Thanks be to the Lord for the reading of his word. Did you, did you notice the words he uses to describe the old and the new here? In the, the old covenant, he said, was faulty, obsolete. It is growing old. It is ready to vanish, pass away. But the new is more excellent. It is better. It is new. Here it comes. So what he's doing in this passage is he's beginning uh, to compare and contrast the old covenant with the new covenant. And he's talking about, of course, the, the Mosaic covenant, this old covenant that was made through Moses. So after they came out of Egypt, the Ten Commandments come down on Mount Sinai. This starts the beginning of the Old Covenant with all the regulations. There's basically uh, three main bodies of things in the covenant. There's the moral standards, uh, how we are to behave toward God and others. There's the civil laws, the administration of the government of the people of Israel, as well as justice standards within the nation. And then you have the worship directives, right? So this is temple regulations and sacrificial system things. And so you have these, this, all of this is bound up in the Mosaic Covenant. And at the very end of Deuteronomy, where Moses again reprises the law, says, here it is, and then he caps it off this way, we get kind of the essence of what the Old Covenant was all about. This is Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 15 to 30. If you want to turn in your Bibles to it, uh, you'll find this on page 172 in the Black Pew Bible. Uh, Deuteronomy 30, I'm going to read these verses to us, 15 to 30 here. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and rules, so everything I've given you here, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to take possession of it, the promised land. 
But if your heart turns away and you will not hear but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him. For he is your life and the length of your days, and you may dwell in the land of the Lord, the the one the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give to them. So God says, here's two paths for you. Life and good, death and evil. And if you persist in loving, faithful obedience, you will have blessing and life in the land. But if you are disloyal, unfaithful, disobedient, Curses and death. And the Old Testament tells us the story of what happened after that, doesn't it? A story of the people of God who for time, very initially, uh, they were. They were enthusiastically obedient to God, but it it faded. It fell apart. And all of a sudden, they, um, they, they, over years and years of persistent disobedience and running after false gods and worshiping other Uh, deities. Finally, God said, enough is enough. And he sent them in exile, and uh, they were dispossessed of their land. Of course, they came back. God said, I'll bring you back. He brought them back. But they never really came back, not all the way back, because uh, they were under the rulership of other nations. And all the way up until the time of Jesus, they had Roman overlords, right? And uh, they never had their national sovereignty back. They never really came home. Not really, not truly, not fully. And then along comes Jesus. And John 1.17 says, for the law was given through Moses, old covenant, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So something new is happening here. And of course, Jesus in his ministry, right before he goes to the cross, he has the last supper, right? And he says, this is the cup that is poured out for you, the cup of the new covenant in my blood. So Jesus inaugurates a new covenant, a new era through his priestly ministry with a once-for-all sacrifice, ushering a new covenant era in, which is enacted on a whole new set of promises that are all yes and amen in Jesus. So what we're going to do now is I want to show you, in looking at the passage that we saw in Hebrews, I want to show you seven ways that the new covenant is better than the old one. Seven ways that the new covenant is better than the old one. The new covenant established in Jesus eclipses and outshines and leaves the old covenant in the dust. I'm going to only show you seven things, okay? There's more than this, but these are the ones that are in the text before us. Uh, today. But before we do that, I want to address something that always confused me about the Bible, okay? Um, From our vantage point, the Old Covenant, as we look back on the Old Covenant, this side of Jesus, right, in the New Covenant era, we look back on the Old Covenant and we say, boy, that was a lousy deal, wasn't it? The Old Covenant with sacrifices and blood on everyone's hands and all that. Like we say, man, we've got it good in Jesus, right? Um, And we read 
texts like what Paul writes in the New Testament, like in 1 Corinthians 15, verses, uh, verse 56. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Oh, the law is bad, isn't it? Oh, it's so bad, isn't it? Romans 8, 2. Uh, we are set free in Jesus Christ from the law of sin and death. What does the law lead to, Paul? Sin and death. Oh, this is bad. The law is bad, isn't it? So bad. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. The law is a curse, friends. This is not good. So we get it. Okay, Paul, we got it. Yeah, life under the law, bad. Life under Jesus, good, right? Well, why would God roll out something so awful, right? And then you go read King David, and King David says in Psalm 119.97, Oh, how I love your law. Oh, I meditated on it day and night. Can't get enough of it. Psalm 19, verse 10, it's sweeter than honey, than honey drippings out of the comb. Oh, just, right? Are we talking about the same thing here? Like Paul and David, get in a room and make up your mind. Like what's, is it good or bad? Like why, like what's going on here? Well, it depends on what you're comparing it against. If, if you're David and you're comparing the law to a time when there was no law, like there was a time when God hadn't spoken, he hadn't given the Ten Commandments. Like, do you realize what that time was like? It, everyone knows that this world is a bit scary, right? And animistic peoples all over this world still live like this. They don't know where the lines are. It's a scary world. They're supernatural beings. I feel estrangement in the universe. I know I sin. I know I'm broken. Bad stuff happens. I assume it's my fault. I figure I've got to make appeasement somewhere. Someone's mad at me. But I don't know what I did, really. What's the rules? I don't know. Somehow I strayed over it. And how do I get right? I don't know. Kill a pig, kill a goat. Kill it. How much? How much blood is necessary? How much do I? Do you see the worldview? So before the law, and then all of a sudden God comes along and he says, here, 10 rules to live by. Here they are. And you're like, oh man, those are really hard. Yeah, but at least you know. At least you know where the lines are. You know where the boundaries are. And you know, if I cross these lines, I know exactly what I knew to need to do to get home. I know exactly what's required. Two pigeons, one goat, three lambs, a bull, whatever. I know exactly the recipe to come home. It's safe. And I know that once I've done what God has asked, I know I can go home with peace in my soul, at least until next time. You see how much better that is? It's a huge improvement. And David goes, I'm so glad you told us. I meditated on it. I think about it because why? I want to be right with you. And I need to learn to live in line with what you want for me. And so help me to do that, God, right? But at least I know now. Some of you are classroom managers, your teachers. Some of you are parents. And you know this. When the kids don't know where the lines are, they feel unsafe, unsure, and they freak out. And there's so much goodness in just saying, here's the boundaries, and we consistently enforce them.
And this is what the law brought for, for, for people. All of a sudden, we knew. It's good. It's good. But on the other hand, Paul is looking at this, and he's saying, now that Jesus has come, now that Jesus has brought this new covenant, now that Jesus has brought grace and the era of the Spirit and has changed the dynamics of everything, don't you dare go back and try to live by the old deal. You put the, old, the law and Jesus side by side, the law, get rid of it, it's awful. You've got Jesus now. Especially the Judaizers that are trying to like mix these two and say, you've got to not only believe in Jesus, you've got to obey the law as well. And Paul says, no, 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 no. It's obsolete, it's gone. Move it aside. Jesus has come. Everything's changed. Don't mix this. Don't blend it. Don't try to like have this and this. No, no, no. Grab a hold. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Not Jesus plus fidelity to the law. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. So David says, compared to, not, to, compared to what we had before, the law is so beautiful and good. It's amazing. And Paul says, but compared to Jesus, throw it out. Throw it out. It's junk. Obsolete. It's the same thing that happens when you get your cell phone. Three years ago, you got a new cell phone. It was the best thing in the world. Do you remember that? You were showing your friends. You're like, look at my new phone. Look what it does. You're so excited. Maybe some of you hated your phone three years ago. I'm just, but, but, you know, you're, like, excited about it. And then all of a sudden now you're like, ah, this thing's trash. It's slow. I got to upgrade. It's like, what, what, what changed, right? Well, relative to what you're comparing against, it changed. They're both true. It's beautiful, the law, David, and we got to let it go, Paul. Both are true, just depending on how you look at it. Paul will say in Galatians 3.24, the law was a tutor, a chaperone that led us to Jesus. But now that Jesus is here, we don't need it anymore. Gone. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Okay, seven reasons, seven ways that the new covenant is better than the old, okay? This, this is the new future list of the new model, okay? Seven features that make it better. Okay, first, um, verse, well, before we do that, let me, just, let me just say that. Remember the words that we, he used. The old covenant, faulty, obsolete, growing old, ready to vanish. The new covenant, excellent, better, and new. He says in verses 8 and 9, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. This is new. This one's different. It's not like the one we did before. What's coming is new. It's different. Let's look at it, okay? Number one, the old covenant was conditional. The new covenant is unconditional. Conditional, unconditional. The old covenant was conditional. It was an if-then, wasn't it? If you love me, if you obey me, if you're faithful to me, then these things will happen. And if you don't, then these things will happen. If-then, which means the covenant was only as good as its weakest link. Right? And who was the weakest link, God or the people? 
the people. Every time it was the people, right? They kept blowing it over and over again. But the new covenant that God has made with us through Jesus is unconditional. There's no if-then here. It is all I will. Look at the verbs here. Verse 8, I will establish a new covenant. Verse 10, this is the covenant I will make. I will put laws into their hearts and minds. I will be their God. Verse 12, I will be merciful. I will remember their sins no more. It is promises. Don't you see this? I will do this. It is not if, then it is now I will. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God moved toward us in love while we were failures before him. It is his one-way love. It is one-directional love. God has taken in the new covenant full ownership of seeing the particulars of all this covenant made true. It is love from beginning and end from God moving toward us with no strings attached. It is his one-way love, unconditional. Secondly, It is not external, but internal. The old covenant was external. The new covenant is internal. In the old was external. It was about rules on the outside, on tablets of stone handed down from on high. Yes? Posted on the wall. A rule book, if you will, that said, this is how you are to live. And every so often you had to go check and say, what's the rule on this? Right? Look up the regulations. Make sure you're in compliance, right? It's a handbook. It's on the outside. It's an outside-in management system. But in the new covenant, it is internal. Look at verse 10. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. In their minds and on their hearts. How does he do that? He does it through the Holy Spirit. He sends his Holy Spirit to indwell, to dwell within us, to reside, to be at home. Jesus calls him the comforter, or the word can be translated counselor, or the word is paraclete, or advisor, or advocate, or helper, or intercessor, or guide. It's like this word that has all these ideas in English, but we don't know how to quite translate it. He is the paraclete. He's he's there to assist, to guide, to help, to change, to mold, to advocate, to press us forward. It is, listen, it is an inside-out system. The Spirit resides in us to change us from the inside out so that the dominant language now in Paul about living in the new covenant is walk with the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. The Spirit's on a journey. He's going somewhere. Hold his hand and stay with him. It is an inside out Change so that he is progressively leading us into a life that is marked by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. 
This is what the Spirit is doing. By the way, uh, fruit of the Spirit uh, is one fruit with nine dimensions. Okay? So the theologians will talk about the concatenance of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. They grow together. You cannot grow in love apart from joy. You cannot love, grow in joy without peace. They grow together. It is one fruit bearing itself in nine dimensions. Just a little aside. That's a little bonus for you, okay? Thirdly, I think we're on. Um, The old covenant was weakened The new covenant is strengthened, weakened and strengthened. The old was weakened. Because the old covenant was weak, it was conditional. People were the weakest link, yes? And we are frail and fickle and inexpert and inconsistent. And so we were always breaking the silly thing. Human weakness was the downfall of the old covenant covenant, but the new is strengthened. The Spirit dwells in us, and we are not on our own. We have the paraclete. We have the helper, the strengthener, the Spirit who is leading and empowering and guiding and spurring us on, so that, as Paul writes in Romans 8, verse 4, all that the law once required is now being met in us as we live by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit will lead us to the very contours of life that the old covenant expected and required, only this time it is happening through the power of the Spirit. We're actually fulfilling what the old covenant longed for but could never deliver. It is now happening through the life And the Spirit, because God dwells within us, and His enabling grace empowers us every moment of every day as we yield to Him. And we're not alone. We're not on our own. He strengthens us. The Old Covenant, next, was distant, whereas the New Covenant is close. Distant and close. In the Old Covenant, God was distant. He was at arm's length, right? At best, God was two rooms away in the temple, right, for the average person, two courts away. If you, were the high, if you were a priest, he was one room away. And if you were the high priest, only one day a year, and with fear and trepidation, with a rope around your ankle, because you didn't know if you would live or die, you went in with fear and trembling and got out of there as soon as you could, out of the holy place, the inner sanctuary. And so God was always at a distance, and, and he was always far away. But in the new covenant, friends, this is amazing. God is so close. He's so near. He's closer than the very air you breathe. In verse 10, it says, I will be their God, and they will be my people. This is intimate language. This is covenant love language. This is marriage language. I am yours and you are mine. Mutual possession, interdependent love and self-giving. In 2 Corinthians 11, Ephesians 5 and Revelation 19, all those places, we are called the bride of Christ. The bride 
of Christ, that he is our bridegroom and we are his bride, that we are his, and he is ours, and he is so close, so near. In the old covenant, next, next we were forgiven. In the new covenant, we are embraced. In the old covenant, we were forgiven. In the new covenant, we're embraced. In the old covenant, we, were, we, were, we, were, we would come and people were dirty with sin, yes, and they'd be cleansed and forgiven, unburdened of their guilt and sin, and brought back to neutral, at least until next time, right? But in Jesus, we're not just forgiven, we're actually embraced and brought close by God. So think about it this way. If you have a spectrum of morality from plus 10, zero, to negative 10, right? In the old system, you're at zero, right? Neutral. And uh, maybe you did some sin. And so you go to like, say, negative five, right? Just making up numbers. So you go to negative five. So you go to the sacrificial system, you go to the priest, you offer sacrifice, and you move from negative five back to zero, right? So your negative points get canceled, but you're still at zero, You realize in Jesus, not only does he cancel your negative points and get you back to zero, he credits you with his own righteousness, which is a perfect 10. So it's a 16 points or 15 point swing, whatever, I forget my math, but you you see what I'm saying. it's, it's, It's not just to neutral, it's to the credit of a positive righteousness. Um. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, innocent, pure, to be sin for us so that we in him might become the righteousness of God. So we get not just cleansed of our negative points, we get credited with all the righteousness of God in Jesus through what Christ has done for us. This is huge. This is huge. Jesus, or God says here, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. This does not define you anymore. My son's identity will become your own. The next thing is that the old covenant was mediated. The new covenant is direct. The old covenant was mediated. The new covenant is direct. Now, when I say this, I do not mean that the law was mediated through Moses and through the priests, and you had to go through them to get to God, although that's true. But my point here is that you had to pass the faith along from one generation to another, from one person to another. There were only so many people who saw the glory of Sinai. There were only so many people who saw the redemption of the Red Sea. There were only so many people who experienced the fulfillment of the promises of God. And if you were born anywhere else or joined later, you had to hear about these things. You didn't have a direct experience of these miraculous things that God had done, the saving work of God. You heard about it through the chain from other people who had seen it. And after a few generations, it becomes a distant memory, right? But now... In Jesus, in the new covenant, every single person has a direct experience of the saving work of God. 
In verse 11, God says it this way, They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. Every single one of us in a direct saving encounter and experience with the presence of God. Men, women, children, slave, free, Jew, Gentiles, everyone all having a direct, personal connection and relationship with God where we can know Him, where we can experience Him, delight in Him, and be loved by Him. This is glorious, friends. And then finally, the old was faltering, and the new is enduring. The old was faltering, the new enduring. See, in the old that was faltering, in the end, the old never really brought real life, did it? It couldn't because of the weakness of ourselves. Verse 9, God says, For they did not continue in my covenant, so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. We broke the covenant again and again and again, and so God, he said, okay. They lost the favor of God in his presence. And so it's fading. It's disappearing. It's time to start anew, Hebrews will say, because this new that is come in Jesus is enduring. This covenant, friends, this new covenant in the blood of Jesus endures because Jesus endures. It is his once and for all time sacrifice that he has rendered unto God. It is the power of his indestructible life that he was crucified, buried, and raised and now is ascended, passed through the heavens into glory and having made atonement for sins has now sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. He is king of all kings. He is priest of all priests. And he has now enacted a new covenant that is founded on better promises. And so, don't you see, Hebrews 8, verse 6, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. There it is. So all along, planned obsolescence, don't you see? This was always going to happen. Jesus was always going to come. He's the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world, the scriptures say. This is plan A. The old covenant was the wind-up to the pitch, which is Jesus, and once he comes, everything changes. He has fulfilled the old. He has completed it, put a bow on it, finished it, brought resolution to it, and now he is beginning something new. And here's the takeaway. Jesus has done everything, friends, to make us right with God. Jesus has done everything to make us right with God. So we hold fast and follow him, you see? Our job is to hold on to Jesus. But he did it all. He did it all. There is nothing to fear. 
There's nothing to hide. There's nothing to prove. It is finally finished in the work of Jesus. And our job is to hold on to him because he's enough for us. And Jesus plus nothing truly equals everything. And I know my own soul, how quick it is for me to try to add, you know, try to add something. Well, you know, what God really wants is me to be good. Yet he does want that, but he wants that as a fruit, not a root. The root is in Jesus. That's where you get your life. Once you're rooted in him, you will bear fruit of obedience and goodness and all of that. It will come. But it's not the root. The only root that matters is Jesus. Everything else is poisoned. It won't work for you. Jesus alone has done everything to make you right with God. Here's an illustration. Maybe this will help. This is, by the way, this is the difference between religion and the gospel. Religion says I've got to be good so God will love me. The gospel says, I'm loved by God, so now I get to be good. Totally different, you see. If I go home and I'm not sure if my dad loves me, and I'm scared and I'm nervous, and I want want to, maybe he'll smile at me today, I don't know. Scared about it, I'm not sure where I stand. And I see the yard needs mowing, and I think, here's my chance to prove myself. I'm going to go mow that yard, and then he'll be happy with me. So I go mow the yard. Another kid goes home, and he knows his dad loves him, that he's secure, that he's welcome, he's home, everything's beautiful. His father smiles over his life. He sees the yard needs mowing, and he thinks, ah, here's a chance for me to love my dad back, and goes and mows the yard. In both cases, you've got a kid mowing a yard, but very different ways. One is religion, one is the gospel. The fruit of our acceptance with Jesus necessarily leads to a changed life, but it is not the change in our lives that makes us acceptable. Gospel versus religion. This is what God's done in Jesus, friends. He has set you free. It is one-way love, and it will transform you. Our job is to let it all the way in. And unconditional love is scary. Because anyone who loves you this much, once you let it in, they've got your heart forever. And you are no longer your own. And that's why most of us hold back. Because we're scared to be loved that much. Don't you see, this is what your God wants for you. It's why he did all of this work, so you and he would be right. Won't you let his love in? All the way in? Would you pray with me? Father, Your love is so amazing. 
sometimes we wonder if it can even be this good, this real. But then we look at Jesus. And he gave it all for us so we could be near. We thank you that you have taken upon yourself to do everything to bring us home. Help us to rest in your arms, to bask in your love, to allow you to love us into loveliness as we welcome you in. Help us to stop making excuses. Let you really love us all the way down. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.